This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So do you guys know what nearly eight, every eight-year-old boy in the history of mankind has wanted? Take a guess. What has every eight-year-old boy wanted? Star Wars. Yeah, we all did kind of want to be either Han Solo or Luke Skywalker. That is true. Um, but really, eight-year-old boys want a puppy, don't they? Eight-year-old boys want a puppy. Ours were no different. Ethan Sean wanted a puppy. And you know how nearly every parent of eight-year-old boys has responded? No. Or some version of no, like not yet, or when you get older, some way to like kick the can down the street, if you will. And mind you, like it's not because we're mean people. It's not because we want our kids to be miserable. It's because we know all that's involved in raising a puppy. Amen? Like, we know what it costs. And the cost of the puppy is nothing compared to the cost of all the vaccines and the vet visits, the cost of all the food, the cost of all the stuff. And, uh, but it costs more than just money, doesn't it? Puppies, they cost time. You know, you've got to walk the dog, you've got to feed the dog, you've got to clean up the dog, you've got to bathe the dog, you've got to play with the dog, and then by then you've got to go take him out to go potty again. It costs you money, it costs you time, it costs you freedom, right? Who let the dogs out? The person who goes home every six hours to let the dogs out, that's who. And then vacations aren't the same, you've either got to stay at a place that allows pets, and there's always like an extra cleaning fee for that, or you find some really good friends who love your dog almost as much, if not more, than they love you, and they'll dog sit for you. That was the case for us. But one day, one day a friend of ours, we're going to call, just for the sake of argument, let's call her Kelsey, okay? We'll call her Kelsey. And Kelsey, she texts us a picture of what might be the cutest beagle you have ever seen. And let's call her Alice. And everybody go, oh, it is the cutest beagle you've ever seen, at least in my word. Here's the deal. Here's what you might not know about Alice. Um, she spent her first four years being tested on in a pharmaceutical lab. Oh, yeah. And so when Kelsey's friends Mark and Laura started fostering her, uh, she thought, you know what, Alice would be a great addition to your family. And so what Kelsey, Kelsey, sorry, Kelsey, um, proceeded to do was text us a new picture of Alice nearly every day for three straight weeks. This was what she bombarded us with. And after that, we did what nearly every parent of now nine-year-old boys does. We caved and we got a dog, and Alice came to live with us. As Ethan referred to it, it was a Christmas miracle. She was our pandemic pup, and there was our first Christmas picture together the night Mark brought her over. And you know, a couple weeks later, um, I posted this picture of Sean holding his, his new little puppy. Right? There's just a lot of awe today. And I said, um, I said next time someone asked me, why in the world did you get a dog? said, I'm just going to show them this. Because, yeah, right, dogs cost a lot. But when you consider the reward, right, the joy this little furball brings, you know what? She is worth every cent. She is worth every second that it costs us. Most days. 
But when Jesus calls us to follow him, I think we start to ask ourselves similar questions. Asking ourselves, is it worth the cost to follow Jesus? Like, how much money, how much time, how much freedom am I going to have to give up to follow Jesus? And we even start, like, what cost is too high? What cost are you unwilling to pay for Jesus? And so this morning, as we continue our series, Following Jesus, inspired by Henry Nouwen's book, uh, Following Jesus, Finding Our Way Home in an Age of Anxiety, we're going to see the cost of following Jesus, the one who took up his own cross. And we're going to see that the cost for us is to take up our cross. And so if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. And in this passage, we're going to come to know the one that we follow. We're going to count the cost of following Jesus. And then we're going to consider the reward for following Jesus. And as we've done each week of this series, I want to invite you to pray with me, to pray uh, the words of this prayer that Henry Nouwen writes in his book. So pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you to enter into the mystery of the way of Jesus, the way of discipleship, the way that leads from the cross to new life. It is not an easy way, but is a way of peace and joy. Help us to be here with a heart open to suffering, a mind open to understanding, and a will ready to follow. There are many struggles, and we will always have many struggles, but with you, O Lord, we are living in the light. With you, O Lord, we are moving more and more toward life. With you, O Lord, we know we are safe. Let us celebrate our life in a spirit of gratitude. Grateful that we are here and grateful you are our God. Amen. Well, first thing, let's come to know the one we follow. And we come to know the one we follow. We come to know Jesus by asking a very simple question Who is Jesus? Who do you think that he is? And so Luke in chapter 9, if we were to go back to the beginning, it begins with Jesus uh, sending the 12 out on their first field, their first internship, if you will, healing and preaching. And then when they come back, he he wanted to take them on a retreat because he wanted to hear how it went. He wanted to know what they learned. As an example, when the boys get home from school each day, I ask them the same question every day. I said, what was cool about school? Right? What I learned was don't ever ask your kids how school went because you're going to get a, I got ah from Alice, you get a uh from school. So instead, ask them what was cool about school. And I forced them to like, I real force them, like they can't not get out of the question. What was cool today? Just tell me something, one thing. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. But he also knew that they were exhausted. They needed rest. They needed to catch their breath. And so he took them on a retreat of A time of silence and solitude with God, something that we've been practicing more, something that we're going to do uh, next summer as part of the way. And he asked them who the people they encountered, who did they think Jesus was? And they said, they, they, they thought you were a prophet, some thought maybe you were Elijah, maybe even come back from the dead. And then he asked them in verse 20, but but who do you? Who do you? say that I am. And Peter, Peter's like sitting in the front row, like raising his hand, calling me, calling me. And he, uh, but he doesn't wait to be called on. He just blurts out the answer. He's like, the Christ of God. 
And he was right, but only kind of right. See, the title of Christ comes with expectations. Expectations of how Jesus as the promised Messiah would usher in God's kingdom and reign over God's people. And we see those explanations play out in Scripture. We see them play out on Palm Sunday as the the crowd welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, right? Waving palm branches, this symbol of of peace and, and victory over oppression. Shouting, Hosanna, save us, O Lord, we pray. Expecting this warrior, political Messiah to not just bring peace and prosperity, but comfort and security, restoring Israel to greatness, acquiring political power, and taking the throne of David by force, conquering their earthly enemy of Rome. And even Peter expressed this very same expectation later that same week, defending Jesus with violence when guards came to arrest him, slicing off the ear of one of the guards, and Jesus' response to this violence saying, no more of this. Put your sword back in its place. And 2,000 years later, we continue to demonstrate a similar misunderstanding of who Jesus is, don't we? I think we we see this misunderstanding play out with, with Christian nationalism's violent rhetoric and treatment of others. Pursuing political power and doing all of this, mind you, in the name of Jesus. Ushering in God's kingdom by force. But I think we also see it play out with our own self-centered expectations of Jesus. Expecting him to provide us with the American dream in this sort of consumeristic version of Christianity that exists. Our Americanized gospel, this Gospel of cheap grace. And so I'm going to ask you the same question Jesus asked the 12. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? Is he a wise prophet? Is he a a good example, a moral leader? Or is he Christ? Is he the son of God? Because see, who you think Jesus to be impacts what you expect Jesus to do, right? Who you expect him to be impacts what you expect him to do. And so don't just ask, who is Jesus? Ask, why are you following Jesus? Why are you here? Why did you set the alarm on a Sunday morning when you could have slept in and gone out to brunch with friends? Why? What is it you're expecting Jesus to do for you? And when, where is it you expect him to lead you? What is that desired destination you're hoping you're headed towards. But Jesus knew his disciples misunderstood this, and so he revealed to them here for the very first time, mind you, what his own journey as the Messiah would entail, what he would cost him as Christ. And he says in verse 22, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. For us, this is incredibly clear. For them, they were like, huh? That's not how a king goes down, at least not a victorious king. And yet, aren't those words nearly exactly what the church has declared Jesus Christ to be for nearly two millennia through the Nicene Creed? A creed that, uh, I love this, our kids and youth, uh, Tim has the, he recites this with them every Sunday afternoon when they get together. And so I'm gonna invite you to, let's look at this part about 
the Nicene Creed about who Jesus is. Will you guys read this with me? Right? It says that Jesus Christ, he was the only son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true light from true God. Begotten, not made, of the one and the same essence as the Father, through whom all things were made. Through whom you were made. But it, it, the creed doesn't only declare who Jesus is, it declares why we follow him. Not because of what we hope he might do, but what he has already done. So read this with me. He says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But not only does the creed identify who Jesus is and what he has already done, but what he's promised to do, and that he will come again and he will come with glory to judge the living and the dead, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen? Amen. Jesus is leading us closer to him. He is leading us to, to living in his already not yet kingdom. See, Jesus, he knew the cost of his journey as Christ, and he counted that cost. He counted the cost, every crack of the whip in his back, every strike of the hammer as those spikes were driven into his hands and to his feet. He counted the cost, and then he considered the reward, that reward being our salvation. That reward being our redemption, our liberation. And Jesus, knowing all of this, willingly paid that cost by laying down his life. Right? Paying every cent of the debt we owe to God because of our sin against God. Paying it with his blood. Paying it with his life on the cross. Not because he had to, but because he chose to all out of his love for you. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you take nothing away from today other than this, take away this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He showed you that love on the cross. And so before he led his disciples one step further, we've talked about in this series, Jesus ain't no timeshare salesman. He's not a used car salesman, no. He was up front with the terms and conditions. We don't read the terms and conditions, do we? We just sign them and check the box and initial. Jesus paused. He's like, we're going to read these together. He wanted to ensure they knew what they were getting into when they were following him, what it would cost them, and thereby what it would cost us. And so number two, we count the cost, don't we? And we count the cost by asking the question, what does it cost to follow Jesus? What does it involve? What should we expect from this? And this is important because I think our frustrations often stem from unmet expectations, don't they? We expect one thing and we experience another thing. Take, for example, uh, one of my favorite episodes of The Office. Uh, Michael Scott, he, he's having a bad day. And he steps out of his office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. And Oscar, he kind of looks at him. He's like, hey, um, I just wanted you to know you, you can't just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen. Oscar's an accountant. He knows what he's talking about. And Michael, he's like, I didn't say it. I declared it. And it's easy for us to think 
that by simply declaring ourselves as a Christian, that that's all there is to following Jesus. I said it. I said it in a prayer when I was a kid at an altar call. I said it. I even got a, a, a t-shirt and a coffee mug to prove that I said it. But then later on, we end up frustrated when we discover that following Jesus costs us something. That it involves more than mere words. And so Jesus tells us exactly what to expect. He clarifies the cost of following him in verse 23, saying, and he said to all, raise your hand if you're here in the room. All right? Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you're still in the room, your hand's metaphorically raised. And he said to all, speaking not just to 12 that were following him, but anyone and everyone who would ever answer the call to follow Jesus, he says, if anyone, raise your hand if you're anyone, I'm not even going to look up because I know only three-fourths of you are raising it. That's okay. I love you. If it, eventually we're going to get into it, though. We're gonna, you're going to raise it. I know one day. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, my follower, a Christian, then expect. Here's the terms and conditions. Ready? Three things. Number one, let him deny himself. Number two, take up his cross daily. And number three, follow me. That's what it involves. Mm, but let's not rush past this. Let's go back. First thing, following Jesus, it involves self-denial, doesn't it? It involves self-denial. Instead of treat yourself, Jesus said deny yourself. And denying yourself is not like going on a diet and denying yourself that treat. No. Uh, Dale Bruner, he writes in his commentary, he says, self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it is giving up ourselves as lords. It is the decision to let another lord rule one's life. Jesus called for a radical self-denial that says no to anything and everything that stands in our way of following him. Anything that distracts our attention and draws our affection away from him. Denying our own dreams, our own desires, so that God's desires become our desires. So that God's will becomes our will. Praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Following Jesus involves self-denial. Number two, following Jesus involves suffering. Notice Jesus didn't say, take up arms and defend me. He didn't say, take up violent rhetoric against those who are against me. No, he, he says, take up your cross and follow me. And the cross, the cross wasn't this neat little charm we put on necklaces today 2,000 years later. no. The cross in that day, it was an instrument of public humiliation and shame. As convicted criminals, they weren't just executed, they were forced to carry the beam of their own cross to the place of their own execution. And that, isn't that exactly what Jesus experienced? Carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem? And not just Jesus, but many of his early followers faced that same fate. And that makes the kind of suffering Jesus says his followers should expect to experience from following him very visible and public in nature. Suffering, shame, and humiliation. But it also makes the suffering he describes far less metaphorical in nature and far more literal in nature. Jesus carried his literal cross 
early Christians carried a literal cross. Sometimes we're prone to take parts of the Bible literally that we were never meant to. Some of the time we take things we were meant to take literally very figuratively, don't we? We should expect to suffer and to suffer physically even, even to the point of death because of our faith. And it's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Yes, there is a death of our old self, of our false self, and new birth that takes place. And sometimes he'll call you to actually lay down your life. And even if we don't lay down our actual life, we lay down our life by laying down our comfort and control, denying a life of safety and security. Because in order to take up our cross, we have to lay down whatever it is that we are holding on to. And we hold on to that stuff tightly, don't we? We have to lay it down in order to take up our cross. Not occasionally, he says, but daily. Not forcefully, but willingly. Embracing a life of suffering. Expecting a life of suffering. Not being surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us as though something strange were happening, as though you did something wrong. But no, rejoicing in that we get to share in Christ's suffering, Peter says. Simply for following Jesus. Mind you here, he's not asking us to go hunt down a cross. He's not asking for some sort of persecution complex that seeks it out. No, if we faithfully follow the way of Jesus, it will find us. I think what we see here is just yet another example of how cultural faithfully following the way of Jesus and faithful obedience to the words of Jesus truly is. Because he's going to lead us toward things that our culture seeks to avoid, that our culture views as shameful. It involves self-denial, it involves suffering, and number three, following Jesus involves surrendering control. It involves surrendering control. He says, follow me. And following someone requires a few things. It requires, first off, humility and intimacy. It involves movement and direction, but above all, it requires trust, doesn't it? Eugene Peterson writes in the message, he says, anyone who attends to come after Come with me, has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. You know what I'm going to say next. Jesus, take the wheel. Following him wherever he leads, at his pace and in his direction, giving him total control. But here's the thing you're never going to follow someone you don't trust. And you're never going to trust someone you don't know. And you're never going to know someone you never spend time with. And that is why intimacy with Jesus, that is why spending time with Jesus is so critical to this journey that we are on. Because following Jesus requires trust, that we trust him, surrendering complete and total control of our entire life to Jesus as Lord, not ourselves. That's who Jesus is. That's the cost. And as we count the cost, number three, we need to consider the reward. And we consider the reward by asking a very simple question. Is it worth the cost to follow Jesus? Is it worth it or is that cost of self-denial, of suffering, and of surrendering control, is that just 
Is that too much? You know what? You can have the t-shirt back and the coffee mug. I want the coffee mug. You can have the t-shirt back. Think about that as Jesus gives us two considerations here. Two considerations of the eternal cost that's at stake. And the first consideration, look down here with me, verse 24 and 25. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now think about the ways in which we go about saving our life. We seek to save our lives by avoiding suffering in search of security, don't we? Relational security? Because we don't want to be alone. Physical security, so that we're safe and protected. Our health, so we can live longer and not be in pain. Job security, financial security, so we can have what we want, go where we want, and retire at the age of like 44. I'm 44. My knees feel like I'm 104 after yesterday. But we're driven by this desire for comfort and control of living the good life and living it our way, of living out this so-called American dream in this hyper-individualized culture that is fixated on the self, where everything has become about me, what it costs me, what it benefits me. And what Jesus is saying here is this supposed dream is actually a nightmare. It is more terrifying than we realize. Because, see, our constant pursuit of comfort and control operating out of a a scarcity mindset, constantly overcome by fear and worry and anxiety, always afraid we're never going to have enough. It distracts our attention and draws our affection away from Jesus. And when it does that, we turn inward, relying on and trusting ourselves rather than Jesus. And our fixation on saving this life leads to losing our life with Jesus, losing our relationship with Jesus, that intimacy with Jesus, to where we no longer hear his voice. We no longer recognize the voice of the good shepherd calling out to us. But what Jesus is calling us here is to lose this life of comfort and control and to lose it for his sake, laying it down, laying it all down, anything and everything that hinders you from following the way of Jesus, knowing that whatever you gain in this life apart from Jesus is of no lasting eternal value, knowing that false sense of control can never bring lasting comfort, knowing instead that in Christ we gain a reward of infinite value, Intimacy with Jesus, the joy that brings comfort in the presence of Jesus, peace that comes from surrendering control and trusting in Jesus. That's the first consideration. The second consideration is this in verse 26 and 27. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, and when Jesus says truly, that's like, Pay attention. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And when we turn the page in our Bibles to the very next passage, the story of the transfiguration, that's exactly what happened. As Jesus, he took some, right? He took Peter and James and John with him up the mountain to pray. And there, Jesus, he's just hanging out, talking with Moses and Elijah. 
And they saw his glory, it says. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. They saw there on that mountain a glimpse of the glory of the king of kings who will return and who will reign over the fullness of God's kingdom. And what we like to say is, man, had I been there, I'd have been forever changed. Peter was there. He got that glimpse. And in spite of that glimpse, he would later deny ever having known Jesus. And he did it to a little girl. A little girl comes up to him in the courtyard. You're with Jesus. He's like, I don't know him. I don't, I don't know a Jesus. Because he was afraid of his association with Jesus, and he was afraid of what that association might cost him. And you might be thinking, I, that's not me. I'd never do that. Let's go back. Let's think about what Jesus is actually saying here. He says, whoever is not only ashamed of me, who's not only ashamed of being associated with me, but who's also ashamed of my words, of what I have said, and the way that I have called you to live. While we may not declare that we are ashamed of Jesus by the words we say, we display it by the way we live sometimes. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Remember the Beatitudes from last year? We display it by the way we live, failing to follow the way of Jesus and faithful obedience to the words of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus, what, what we know it to be, we know it to be a way of love, right? Uh, of loving one another, uh, of loving our neighbor, even loving our enemy, loving the entire world and loving like Jesus. It is a way of love, but it is also a way of, of humble service, looking out not only for our own needs, but for the needs of others. And it is a way of suffering, of surrender and self-denial, willingly taking up our own cross. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes, if we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering... If we refuse rejection at the hands of man, at the hands of the world, he says we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. That's exactly what Jesus said. When we fail to love others like Jesus, when we fail to serve others like Jesus, when we fail to bear our cross and suffer like Jesus, the suffering servant, we display that we are, in fact, ashamed of Jesus and his words and his way. Because to reject his words and to reject his way is to reject him. And to reject the words and way of Jesus is to be rejected by Jesus. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and my way, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes again in glory. The eternal cost of being ashamed and rejected by Jesus outweighs the cost of any suffering we could ever experience in this life. And yet, here's a show of hands. Who has perfectly obeyed the words of Jesus every moment of every day? It's the one time you're not supposed to raise your hand. 
We're going to fail to perfectly obey his words. We are going to stumble along the way. Probably stumbled already this morning, and we're going to stumble on the way out of here again. Peter did. Peter stumbled bad and fell flat on his face, didn't he? And in spite of that, like we know the guy wrote two books of the Bible, right? So there must have been some redemption somewhere, some forgiveness somewhere, right? Takes place at the end of John when Jesus, after his resurrection, he goes and he visits his disciples. And they're out fishing and he, and he pulls Peter aside. And he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter's answers, yes, Lord. And so Jesus called Peter to do two things. Number one, he said, feed my sheep. Right? Care for my followers, my body, my bride, the church. Feed my sheep. And number two, follow me. Continue to follow me. And whenever you stray, listen for my voice and come back to me. And whenever you lay down or drop your cross, pick it back up and follow me. There was grace and forgiveness for Peter. And that same grace and forgiveness extended to Peter is extended to you. That is the reward I want you to consider. Grace and forgiveness extended not just seven times, but 70 times seven, seven million, seven billion, seven trillion, extended without limit. And so I want to ask again, is it worth the cost to follow Jesus? How much is too much for you to give up to follow Jesus? What cost is too high? And I pray that you would answer with a resounding nothing. There is no cost too high because Jesus is worth every step and every cent. He is worth every drop of blood and sweat and tears we might shed in suffering. Jesus is the only thing worth living for and the only thing worth dying for. Amen? I want to close with these words from Bonhoeffer where he writes discipleship, right? Following the way of Jesus. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Here's what I love. In fact, it is a joy and it is a token of his grace to share in Christ's suffering. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.